We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on local now, channel 525. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the show. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And this is The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls, answering your Bible questions, questions about stuff going on in your life, whatever's on your heart. Your only part is to give me the phone call, 210-340-9585, if you're outside the local San Antonio area. You can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. And as always, if you are driving in your car, the safest way to call is use the free KSLR mobile app Just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen and you will be connected directly to our studio producer. One more time, 340-9585 is our primary number. Hey, tonight I'm going to be teaching out of 2 Kings, the end of chapter 5. I'm sorry, the end of chapter 14 and as much as chapter 15 uh, as I can get tonight. Uh, Really important, I think, practical studies, uh, even though they're Old Testament and historical a um, lot, of, lot of valuable information for us. And then, of course, tomorrow will be Thursday, and Paula will be live in studio with me on the date day edition of the program. Let's get right to the questions that have been sent in while we wait your phone calls. Uh, this one is anonymous from our email inbox. Hi, Pastor Ron. Glad you're feeling better. Thank you for that. And then uh, he or she says, I want to ask your opinion about death. Do you agree that there was no death before sin? And if so, do you agree that dinosaurs could not have died before Adam, so therefore lived in Eden? They also had to be vegetarian since no animal could die. God bless you and the church family. Thank you very much, Anonymous. Um, I agree almost with all of that. Um, Certainly God's intent was for mankind to live forever. The, The prohibition against eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was that if you eat from that tree, that's when you'll die. So clearly there was no death before that. Uh, it's, it's also true that animals, uh, all of them were um, not carnivorous until after the fall. So uh, the animals lived under the dominion of Adam for however long that is, and we don't know how that is. Now regarding dinosaurs, um, dinosaurs would have been, and we know they were there, there's a couple of of vague references to dinosaurs, um, Psalms and in, in the book of Job. Um, but dinosaurs would have been wiped out um, in the judgment of the flood. Um, and then if dinosaurs were included, and it's likely that they were uh, in small packages uh, on Noah's Ark, um, then what would have happened between uh, the, the, the repopulating of the earth uh, they would have just become extinct. And we, we still see animal species becoming extinct. So um, you're right. There was no death before sin. S- death entered the world when sin entered the world. 
and uh, dinosaurs would have been alive. Now, whether or not they lived in the Garden of Eden specifically, um, we don't know. We don't know. We know that Adam, um, God paraded the animals by Adam, two by two, male and female. And and Adam gave them names. The dinosaurs were there. Um, Then Adam would have given them a name as well. So I hope that helps a little bit. Thank you for the question and thank you for the well wishes. I am feeling better. Thanks very, very much. Here's a question from Lynette from our email inbox. In Revelation chapter 6, verse 8, the green horse is given authority to kill um, with the sword. Um, Islam's color is green and Muslims are about one quarter of the world's population today. Hal Lindsey says the Greek word for this sword is the cursed Muslim sword and not the double-edged sword. Does this mean this verse is prophecy, not judgments? Two things on that. First of all, um, the green horse is a pale horse. Uh, the, the Greek word that we get from this is, is chloros. We get our English word chlorine from it. And it's just a symbolic way, a color that describes death uh, without Jesus. So uh, the pale horse is actually green and it symbolizes the death that's going on. In fact, it says its rider was named Death and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague and by the wild beasts of the earth. Now, um, you know, there are some people that say the Great Tribulation doesn't really begin until the middle of the seven, seven years. Um, but But remember, this is the beginning of it. So tell that to the more than one in a people who are going to die in this judgment as a result of war and famine. Only about 60 million people were killed in both world wars combined. The idea here is this is unfathomable, unfathomable destruction. So that's what was going on. This is the fourth seal um, that's being opened. And uh, death claims the body, but Hades claims the soul is the idea. Now, uh, you asked if these were prophecies or judgment. Um, these are judgments, and that's really clear. A word of warning about Hal Lindsey. Hal Lindsey is a sensationalist, and he makes his living um, scaring people. He makes his living selling uh, things. And the more sensational he gets, the more stuff he sells. So, Lynette, be very careful and discerning about who you're listening to. Hal Lindsey's eschatology is correct in terms of its sequence. Um, but, but like all sensationalist ministries, he is um, he just gets more and more sensational the older he gets and the more books that he wants to write. And, and, and that's why we have to be careful of ministries like his. You know, Hal Lindsey's, it's amazing. He sort of was um, instrumental in um, the Jesus movement days back in the, the late 60s, early 70s. Uh, he wrote the book, The Late Great Planet Earth. Um, and, and boy, all those hippies that were getting saved, they had a Bible in one pocket and Hal Lindsey's Late Great Planet Earth in the other pocket. Uh, and then he just got weirder and weirder and weirder as the years went by. And, and that's just a function of, of uh, a man who's sort of rogue, um, not accountable to anyone, and um, that's, that's simply not true. The, the color, um, Islam's color being green, uh, has no connection at all to this. Muslims are not specified in this passage of Scripture. And when we start looking at I have another uh, listener who... who um, um, used to call and write me stuff all the time who would say, this color is for Russia and this color is for... You, we don't need to go there, Lynette. The explanation in Revelation chapter 6 is is crystal clear as are the explanations of all the other phenomena. So this is judgment and that's clear. Remember, uh, I answered another question from you. Uh, this is the wrath of the Lamb, the last two verses in Revelation chapter 6 comes. So this is judgment and only judgment. Thank you for the question. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Patricia. She says, we're told to glorify God in everything that we do. What does that look like 
uh, practically, say, at work or in school. Patricia, it looks the same whether it's work, school, or just hanging out with friends. It's doing all things as unto the Lord. And that's what we're supposed to do. Uh, at work, for example, it means that we go to work, we're there on time, we're there with the right attitude, and we give an honest day's work for an honest day's pay. Um, we don't just go through the motions. I talk about taking Jesus to work here at the church all the time. It'll make a, a much better day at work. It just means doing your very, very best. The same thing in school. Um, you know, if Jesus was with you at school, nobody would cheat. Nobody would plagiarize. Uh, we would study and we would do the very best that we can. Um, uh, even, even in, in our family lives, um, glorifying God in everything you do is to have a family where Jesus is, uh, the priority of the family, where Jesus is front and center of all that you do. Uh, a family that, that would open the Bible together, a family that would pray together. Um, that's what it would look like at home. So practically, it just means doing your best. Our school motto here at Calvary Chapel Christian Academy is do all things as unto the Lord. And that means the way we conduct ourselves, our conversations outside of school, uh, the level of effort that we put in uh, in school. Um, and so that's what we're to do. Now, obviously, Patricia, we fall short because we're lazy sometimes. Our attitude is bad sometimes. But you see, because the Holy Spirit lives in us, it's one of those things where we can uh, do the best we can to honor the Lord, even when we don't feel like doing it. So that's what it looks like practically. It's just doing the best you can. Um, you know, God doesn't really care the, about the result as long as the effort is put in. You know, here at our academy, we have kids that are really, really smart. We have some kids that are not as smart as some of the other kids. And not every kid is going to be an A student. And so what we want our kids to do, if you get a C, get a C doing the best you can. If you get an A, make sure you're doing the best that you can. If you're really smart and you're kind of sliding by, well, there's no honor for God in that. So just do all things as unto the Lord. And if that would be something that we would pay attention to in our own lives, Patricia, then believe me, the church wouldn't be as impotent as it is in terms of our witness in this world that we live in. No shortcuts, um, no cutting corners, no just doing enough to get by. Instead, what we're really trying to do is get up and please God every day in everything that we do. So I hope that answers your question. I like that question. That's why I call it practical application, and I like doing that. Thank you very much, Patricia. Here is a question from Donald. He says, is interpreting dreams a spiritual gift today like with Daniel or Donald, I might add, or with Joseph? We know that they had the gift of dream interpretation. Um, but the answer to your question is uh, I don't see it listed as a spiritual gift. Um, certainly, I don't believe that people today have the gift of interpreting dreams. I know people who claim that they do. Um, we used to have a lady at the church who said, oh yeah, I, I, God's given me the gift of interpreting dreams. So uh, she actually came to me one day, she said, Pastor Ron, if anybody has dreams, I can interpret them. And of course, I use that as an opportunity to make sure that people stayed as far away from her as possible because interpreting dreams isn't a spiritual gift. A couple of things about dreams, Donald. If God gives you a dream, he wants you to know what it means. And he's the one who will reveal it to you when the time is right. Now, I've had a couple of dreams. I'm a dreamer. I mean, I have terrible, terrible dreams all the time. But I've had a couple of dreams um, throughout the years that were from the Lord. Uh, and I knew they were from the Lord. Um, and I, I wanted to know what they meant. But I had to be comfortable with, okay, Lord, um, I trust you. You want me to know what this means. I'm, I'm impressed that... This dream really is from you. So when I need to know, Lord, tell me. And he's been faithful to do that. But most dreams are not from God at all. I, I do believe, and it's certainly true in my life, that that demons and the devil, they, they, they really mess with our sleep and our rest. And I have dreams that I can't wait to wake up from, and dreams I can't get back to sleep because of. 
Um, but 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 there's no interpretation. That's just that's just spiritual harassment. But if God gives you a dream, He's the one who wants you to know what it means. And sometimes He'll tell you right away. Other times, um, what He'll do is He'll just wait until you need to know. And those dreams are often warnings or preparations for things that are going to come in the in the future. But I, I don't believe and see absolutely no evidence biblically or experientially for dream interpreting as a spiritual gift. Um, with Daniel, um, with Joseph, um, there, there simply was, um, they were in the right place at the right time. God told them exactly what needed to be done. So, Donald, I hope that makes sense to you. Thank you very, very much. Smokey says, uh, I'm, a, I'm dating a woman who is a believer, but who attends a church that gets pretty goofy. Before we get serious, should we talk about our churches and beliefs? Absolutely, Smokey. Uh, you should. Um, you know, it's possible to be unequally yoked, even with somebody who is a Christian. So these are things that ought to be discussed before the marriage, in marriage counseling. Uh, these are potential difficulties that could drive a wedge between you. So these are things that need to get settled. Let me also say this, Smokey, since um, if this relationship were to get serious and you end up getting married, then, in fact, you're the spiritual head of the household. And it's your responsibility to wash your wife with the water of the word. It's your responsibility to make sure that she's in a safe spiritual environment. And that's the kind of conversation before you get serious that ought to take place because you'd be able to find out what her perspective is on that responsibility. Look, should we get serious and, and eventually this lead to marriage, then I'm going to stand before the Lord and give account of my stewardship over you. And that means if I let you go to a church that's goofy, then I'm not protecting you spiritually. So here's what we ought to do. We ought to decide now if we're walking the same direction. But I promise you, Smokey, this is very important. Um, you need to make sure you're worshiping the same Jesus. You need to make sure that you're, you're both equally committed to the course that God is going to lay out for you. And if you find that there are, there are differences that are just impossible, um, then it's better before you get into a relationship, it's better to identify those things. And typically, Smokey, I find that when we get into um, um, pre-marriage counseling, um, typically I find that um, those issues come up uh, pretty quickly, pretty quickly. So I hope that makes sense to you. Let's go to, we've got a phone call from James from Belmont, Texas on line one. James, good to hear from you again. You're on the air. Oh, thanks, Pastor Ron. Um, so my, my question is uh, in First uh, John 5. Um, so let me just kind of back up a little bit. Um, let's say, uh, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is love for God to keep his commands. And his commands are not burdensome. <clears throat> for everyone born of God overcomes the word world. Now, this is where I, I start to kind of lose it some. It says... This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. That, to me, is a little fuzzy. But then the next sentence also is, who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. And I know that John's orientation um, was as an apostle and and his background was Judaism. Um, he wrote the Gospel of John, and of course, this letter, they really complement each other, theme-wide, word-wise, just the whole ball of wax. But then when I look back on Acts, um, when, um, when they were presenting to Israel 
the issue at hand. It seemed to be the issue of Israel, uh, you have killed the Messiah. Uh, you did not recognize that Jesus is the Messiah. He is alive. He has resurrected. But believe. And what you were they were to believe in is believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah and the kingdom is at hand. Um, when it says only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God, that that's the one or the ones that overcome the world, is that kind of in reference back to the um, uh, uh, back to that background of, of messianic Christians um, and the issue that the Jews just did not recognize their Messiah? Um, is that kind of where this is pointing to? Because needless to say, I mean, I really don't see a lot of the, the gospel always brought out in John, like, of course, I see it in Paul. And so I do try to look at Peter and John and James with the gospel in the back of my mind, and I look for it. But when I see where it says, who is it that overcomes the world, question mark, only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So I was just wanting to, if you could tell me, uh, is this because his audience is Messianic Jews versus just uh, a mixture of all kind of Christian followers and believers, yeah. both Gentile and Jew? Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that, James. Um, it would be kind of a long, complicated answer, but I'm going to do my best for you. A couple of things. John wrote this book um, to, to, to deal with uh, a specific heresy um, called Gnosticism. Uh, there were a group of Gnostics. Paul also addressed Gnosticism to a lesser degree. But John is writing to people who basically say that um, um, flesh and spirit are two separate, disconnected things. God is spirit, has nothing to do with the flesh. And so in the first century, John wrote this as an older man. Um, John wrote this um, to, to people who were claiming that Jesus was God. They believed he was God, but they didn't believe that he'd come in the flesh. That's why in chapter 4 of 1 John, he starts out with, with brothers, test the spirits. Not every spirit is from God. Any spirit that denies that Jesus has come in the flesh is antichrist or is a lie. And so he's dealing with that. This doesn't have anything to do really with messianic Christianity because Jews who got saved in the first century um, they, 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 they were messianically fulfilled, but they became Christians. So he's dealing here with a very specific um, a heresy called Gnosticism. Secondly, uh, remember that John also wrote or dictated much of Revelation um, uh, and, and over and over in Jesus' letters to the churches, uh, Revelation 2 and 3, there are these overcomer promises. Uh, he who overcomes will, and then there's all kinds of blessings. And this is the same author who, as you put out uh, in verse 5 of First John 5, he says, who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So the overcomer's promises in Revelation apply to those who are born-again Christians who believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and they have overcome the world. So remember, what he's doing here in this passage of Scripture is simply laying out his case. This is the end of 1 John, and he says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child Jesus as well. And, and you know, you're here, John, time and time again, telling us to love our brothers. And since he repeated it again in the last verse of chapter 4, um, then we ask the question, and, and everyone who believes, we need to love those who believe that Jesus Christ has been here. So those are really important issues, but this isn't messianic. This is um, just John dealing with a specific heresy and answering all the questions. One of the great things about First uh, John and Second John to a lesser degree because it's shorter uh, is there's a lot of repetition. And, and John wants us to know this is about knowing that we have fellowship with God. That's a stated purpose of First John. 
in the book. And, and he says, this is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. And his commands are not burdensome, so we need to obey. That just mirrors what Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey me. So um, this, is, this is a book, a lot of assurance, but it identifies that which is heretical versus that which is orthodox. And then he goes into great detail to make sure that we understand how to have fellowship with God. And then he says simply this, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. Clearly, we've overcome the world. Now, there are people who aren't walking in that overcoming power of God, uh, but we overcome the world uh, simply by the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit. We learn that the Spirit, through the Word of God written by the Spirit, sustains us and props us up. So that's what John is doing, and he's, he's solidifying our fellowship with God in the process. By the way, there's a great... Um, um, commentary on First John by Griffin Thomas, and uh, I would I would recommend it highly. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left in the program. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. I will be back in two minutes. back to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh well we made it back in two minutes 340-9585 for your live calls and questions or toll free 877-630-KSLR here's a question from marcia uh, how long should I be patient with someone who has been struggling with the same sins for a very long time? It's close to home, so I need to know. Marcia, I feel your pain. These are really, really hard things. I had a similar question, uh, I think, at the end of last week um, about somebody who keeps falling to the same sins. Um, you, you know, the the... the the obvious answer is that we need to be as patient as we possibly can. God was patient with you. We need to be patient with them. Having said that, I want to be really clear and, and as practical as I possibly can. Um, the people who say they're struggling with the same sins for years and years and years, uh, I don't think they're really struggling. I think they've already given up. If we believe what the Word of God has said, then we can overcome our sin. Sin shall no longer have dominion over you, Paul writes to the church at Rome. And we can have victory. In fact, it's what God wants us to be. So what I would do is, is sit down with this person close to home and, and, and really have an honest conversation with them. It might be a raw conversation, but an honest conversation. Let me ask, how are you really struggling? Now, I'll give you an example. I've had a lot of men, Marsh, over the years that I've been, I've counseled because of pornography. And and for years and years and years, and at some point, you've got to be honest with somebody and say, look, you're not struggling. You, you fight until you don't want to fight anymore, and then you give in to it. That's not struggling. That's being defeated by it. And I've asked people, I said, look, if, if, if you really want to deal with sin, Jesus said if you want to deal with sin, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. If your hand offends you, cut it off. Now, we know he didn't mean that literally, but the idea is that's how forcefully we need to deal with sin. And I've, I've looked at men and said, look, you need to get rid of your computers. Well, I can't do that. How am I going to do that? We, we have to have a computer at home. Well, not if the computer is dragging you to hell. If you are so weak that you cannot resist looking at a computer. I had one young man tell me, and he was a computer genius. And he said, well, you know, I put all these filters on my computer, but I know how to get around them. Well, well then you're not struggling with it at all. You're giving in to it. And I think we've got to at some point question somebody's faith. I don't mean their salvation, but I mean their faith. Do you really believe what God said? If you believe that God said no temptation has seized you except that which is common to man and God is faithful, he wants you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. Do you really believe that? Because if you do, then you won't give in to that sin. You can set your mind and, and heart on things above instead of focusing on the thing that you're struggling with. 
So, uh, again, I think there's time for real conversations, honest conversations, um, but, but be as patient as you can. And, and be patient, uh, pray for this person, uh, but be very, very patient. At some point, however, you're going to have to have a hard conversation with him or with her um, because you're going to have to ask, so why are you still struggling with the same sin for a year or two years or five years or ten years? You know, I love it when people say, I'm really struggling with this sin or with this temptation. And I like that because they recognize there needs to be a struggle. But but we should be struggling with new stuff, not the same old stuff, year after year after year. So the idea is we're to live our lives with victory in Christ. We're not to live defeated lives. And the reality is, Marcia, if somebody is struggling with the same sins over a long period of time... They're not walking in the Spirit, period. The Holy Spirit lives in us, the power that raised Christ from the dead. And certainly that's enough power for us to say no to our flesh and yes to Jesus Christ. So keep praying. Be patient. Um, but again, at some point, you're going to have to confront this person with the reality that they're living in defeat and challenge them to really believe the Lord. And they may not want to be your friend after that, but that's not on you. Here is a question from Timothy. He says, the thief on the cross that got saved didn't get baptized, did not make a profession of faith, and knew nothing of Jesus' return. How do we know he's saved? Well, Timothy, I think all we have to do is look very closely at Jesus' words himself. Today you will be with me in paradise. You know, we get so formulaic as, as, as 21st century Christians. You've got to say this, you've got to do this. Um, the reality is Jesus, faith in Jesus Christ is what justifies all of us. Not faith and works. I mean, he couldn't get off that cross and get baptized, even if that's what he wanted to do. You think God doesn't understand that? We know that the man accepted responsibility for his own sins. I think that's a huge key. He told the other thief on the cross who was insulting Jesus, have you no fear of God? This righteous man has done nothing wrong. We deserve what we're getting, but he doesn't. And then he cried out to Jesus for help. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus acknowledged that today he will be with him in paradise. And of course, three days later, he would be escorted into the presence of heaven. So uh, that's how we know. Timothy, don't ever get caught up in the you got to do this or you got to make this profession or you got to believe this. All you have to do is surrender your heart to Jesus. God knows those who are his. The Bible says he will not be mocked. He knows those who are his. The thief on the cross truly belonged to him. Thanks for the question, Timothy. He's got Michael on line one for New Brunfels. Michael, thank you for calling. You're on the air. First of all, thank you, Rob, for taking my call, Pastor mm -hmm. Rob. Number two, also, thank you for the beautiful words. I listen to you as often as possible, and especially when I'm driving home from work. Thank you, so Michael. So my question, you're, you're welcome very much. So my question is this. I'm really, it's like, what is your translation of the Bible when it comes to, um, in the Catholic religion, we're, it's recommended that we go to sacrament of reconciliation at least twice a year. That is during Christmas and Easter. Mm -hmm. what, what does the Bible say about we going to confession to a priest and receiving reconciliation? Because personally, I basically do a spiritual confession almost daily. Yeah. But my question to you is, you know, I'm not, I don't know what you know. You study yeah. the Bible, that's what you do. So I'm kind of turning to you and saying, you know, I'd like to hear what Pastor Ron has to say about this. Thank you, Michael. I'll give it my best shot. I always make people mad when I say this, but I trust you'll, you'll understand my heart here. Uh, tradition is the reason the Catholic Church does what it does. There's simply no biblical warrant for any of the things that they do. It's just tradition developed over thousands of years. 
and and um, actually less than two thousand years. But but the idea here is they just do what they do, and the idea that you need to go to a priest for a confession is anti-biblical. Um, Jesus is our great high priest. We don't need to go through somebody else. Paul writes to Timothy, and he says, "There's one mediator between man and God, the man Christ Jesus." And that mediator, that, that once and for all statement of mediation means that we never have to go to somebody else. And and if you look at the New Testament over and over, we're told in Hebrews 7, Jesus ever lives to make intercession for us. First uh, John 1, 9 says that if we confess our sins, not to man, but to God, if we confess our sins to God, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Man simply does not have the authority to communicate um, um, or, or to grant absolution or forgiveness for sins. Now, here's what we can do. And he told Peter and his other disciples this, if you forgive anybody their sins, then they're forgiven. But the idea is is that we have the authority to pronounce forgiveness, not to grant forgiveness, but to pronounce forgiveness. And we do that simply by delivering a message that if they accept the message, we know that the power of the Holy Spirit comes and lives in them and their sins, past, present, and future, are forgiven and forgotten. So, um, Michael... I don't know your background, but but uh, um, much of Catholicism as its practice is uh, heretical, uh, with no biblical warrant whatsoever. And uh, your the, the Holy Spirit, I think, is sort of tugging on the door of your heart. Uh, I love that you said that you go before the Lord every day. The Apostle Paul said uh, in Second Corinthians thirteen, I think it's verse five. He said that we're to examine ourselves daily to see whether we're in the faith. And again, the First John passage I read, that should be something that we do daily. It should be something that we do as we fall short or as we sin uh, because we're then instantly restored into the presence of God and into fellowship with God. But it's because there's only one mediator and Jesus has already done it all. We don't need to go to a man. We don't need to go to a program. Our Bibles are all that we need. And then, of course, we enhance our relationship by being involved in a Bible-believing fellowship of believers. Uh, we, we, we use the gifts of the Spirit that God has given us. But, but all of that is a result of our grateful hearts for what God has already done. So the idea of going to confession, um, however often it's required that you go, uh, means nothing. Um, I, I start my mornings, uh, and, and by the way, I, I end my day too. Lord, please, if, if, if there's any sin in me, anything that, that has gotten between you and me, reveal it to me. I, I want to repent uh, because I want to I know that he's with me when I'm sleeping. When I get up in the morning, Lord, I, I'm making this choice to serve you today, and I'm going to do it by the power of your Holy Spirit. And of course, Holy Spirit's going to help you. You've got to be walking, pursuing personal holiness. So, Michael, I think you've got it right. It's just sort of maybe shedding some of those old traditions that we need to get rid of. For those of you who are in the audience who are Catholics and you get mad at me every time, please don't email me. Just read your Bibles. Please just read your Bibles. There's one mediator between man and God, the man Christ Jesus. Here is a question from Bruce. He says, what is the significance of the 12 baskets of leftovers in the feeding of the 5,000? Bruce, I think the significance is, is invaluable for all of us. Remember, the disciples came to Jesus. Oh, it's getting late, and you got all these thousands of people out there. Now, 5,000, that's just counting the men. Uh, if you count women and children, there were probably up to 15,000 people who were out there, and they had nothing to feed them with. They couldn't run to the store. They didn't have Uber delivery. So um, the disciples said, well, you better send them home. Uh, we have nothing to give them to eat. And Jesus looked at his disciples and said, you feed them. And I think at the end, the idea is that there was so much left over that they were able to gather 12 baskets. How many disciples were there, Bruce? There were 12. So each of the disciples went home with a material memory 
that they were used to participate in a miracle. They were participants in a miracle from heaven in the feeding of that 5,000. You know, I always tell our church when I'm discussing this passage of Scripture, by the way, this is uh, the the signature miracle of the New Testament outside of the, the resurrection. It's the only one reported on by all four of the gospel writers. And in this particular case, um, the, the disciples were doubting. You know, how can we do? We, we There's not enough money in the world to pay these people. Take a year's worth of wages to feed just part of these people. And uh, Jesus is simply saying, with God, all things are possible. And at the end of that meal, when he, he had their, their backs, you know, they were facing the crowd, and Jesus called them. He blessed the little lunch that the little boy, John, tells us had. And there were five little barley loaves. It's the cheapest bread possible, little little biscuit-sized things. And just two fish, little fish, sardine-sized fish. And he blessed them. And then he asked the disciples to come and get them. And he handed each one of them just a piece. And then said, now you go feed him. They had to turn around and feed him. Can you imagine what it was like when they turned around and they started to give the first person some fish and some loaves. And then it all multiplied. And as it multiplied, Bruce, this is just my opinion. There's no possible way that that was just little parley bread, bread for poor people, or little tiny fish. Those fish would have gotten bigger and bigger, and they would have passed out for everybody. It would have been smoked because the fish would have needed to be cooked. But he was giving it to everybody, and, and the disciples were actually part of that miracle and I think when Jesus instructed them to pick up those basketfuls that they had left over and there were 12 of them it was like Jesus saying to them now don't ever forget again what God has done don't ever forget that I allowed you to be a part of this miracle and uh, later we have uh, another story uh, of feeding of the 4,000 and and it says they didn't understand about the feeding of the 5,000 um, with the, the fish and the, and the, and the, and the loaves. Um, and they didn't really get it, but it wasn't Jesus' fault because they had that memory. Now, the, the application for us, I hope, is pretty clear, Bruce. The idea here is that we need to remember often what God has done. We need to remember often what God has done. You know, uh, I've shared this before on the program, but money has always been an issue for us. We, we do everything free, uh, there's just so much that God has done, and and we don't have any money. We, we Our church is in a small facility. We can't really get any bigger. We're kind of standing room only now. Uh, and, and uh, you know, there's a lot of times when we've got plenty of money to do what God's asked us to do, and then there's other times. Right now, we're going through a really, really difficult time. And yet, God has always reminded me, it's like my own personal basket of, of, of leftovers God says, remember, I've always been there for you. I've always been there for you, and I'm doing something. We need to remember that God is always with us, even in the middle of that kind of trial. So very important lesson for all of us, Bruce, especially those of us who are going through something difficult at the moment. Good question. Thank you very, very much. 340-9585 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. we still got time for some phone calls. Valerie says, um, Pastor Ron, my job makes it difficult to get to church. Should I get another job? Um, Valerie, your question, even the way it's placed, sounds like the Holy Spirit's already knocking on the door of your heart. Yeah, you need to be in fellowship. Um, going to church shouldn't be easy. It should be a sacrifice, but it is something that we all need to do in obedience to what God has told us to do. Now, I got to tell you, Valerie, um, we have church six, no, five out of the seven nights of the week. Um, men's and women's studies, youth studies on Monday nights. Uh, Tuesday, we have some rehearsals and stuff that go on, so it's not then, but Wednesday night we have a study. I have a, we do a Friday night study um, for people that, that can't come to church on Sunday. Uh, I get that. Um, but, but you can still be a part of a body, a contributing part of the body. So, so either you adjust your schedule or you get another job. And we've had a lot of people who have really been blessed by the Lord when they've taken that stand uh, uh, you know, I, I need a job, but, but I'm going to get another job and tell them, 
that I need Sundays off because Sunday's my day to worship the Lord. God will really stand for you, Valerie, if you do that. But, but yeah, you need to do whatever you can do to make sure that you are a regular contributing member to a local body of believers. So again, I think the Holy Spirit's already knocking on the door of your heart and um, just just listen to his prompting, Valerie. Thank you for asking. Here is an anonymous question. When sharing the gospel, how much detail about the Trinity do we need to explain? Uh, anonymous gospel doesn't mention the Trinity. Now, you, you can, discipleship does, teaching people does. Um, but just sharing the gospel, um, you don't really have to mention the Trinity at all. Uh, other than saying, you know, the, the Father sent his Son. And his Son was God. And Jesus was crucified for the sins of the world, for your sins. And because he didn't stay dead, we can come to him by faith, based on evidence. But we can come to him by faith, and then the Holy Spirit will come into us. And that's when we know that we're sealed. Uh, that's how we know that we really belong to him. And then, then the issue is, let's deal with your sin, ask God for forgiveness, and new life is yours. And the Holy Spirit will, will sort of um, give you the direction that you need, and that's all. But remember, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ is just the good news that God became a baby. He grew up, was sinless. He claimed to be God. He was put to death. And gloriously, he didn't stay dead. He is alive. And believing in him and repenting of your sins, asking God to forgive you, results in new life in Christ. That's the gospel, period, Anonymous. So not much detail at all. You know, the, the Trinity is one of those things that, that, that a lot of people, especially new believers, don't understand and they shouldn't be expected to understand it's pretty straightforward, you know. We, as a believer, we we understand what the Trinity is, even if it becomes difficult to explain. But uh, as a new believer, I don't think anybody understood the Trinity. So give them time to grow, direct them to the Word of God, and let the Holy Spirit be the primary teacher. And of course, when we're sharing with people and they make professions of faith that we need to direct them to a solid Bible-teaching church. Thank you for the question. Here's a question from Andy. He says, do you think there are some specially, no, especially anointed people who have the gift to heal others? Uh, no, Andy, that's not the gift of healing. When you look in the book of 1 Corinthians and explains... Excuse me, i got to catch in my throat. When you go to 1 Corinthians, chapters 12 and 14, uh, where the gifts of the Spirit and then the use of those gifts are, ex are explained, uh, it's not gift plural. It's not like there's a, some guy who's especially anointed, and, and no matter what they say, and that's how they, well, I'm especially anointed, I have the gift of healing. No, the gifts of healing, plural, are given, and the people who receive the gifts of healing are the ones that get healed. So it's not um, one person is anointed to heal and we fill up these coliseums and try to go and hope that we get up and have hands laid on us. That's not what the gift of healing is. And the reality is, is that simple charismatic nonsense and Andy, we fall for it over and over and over again. So no, there aren't people that especially are anointed by God to heal in spite of the fact that often they will make those claims. Uh, you'll, you'll notice when you go to those kinds of services, there's always these long, long, drawn-out appeals for money. Um, um, there, there's no evidence of physical healing. Uh, it, it's, just, it's just silliness, and yet we get caught up in it. So, Andy, the answer is no. Um, if you are healed then you have received a gift of healing, but not because somebody has done it. I've had the privilege, Andy, of being able to pray for people who got healed, not not, not routinely. You know, nobody's, I haven't given any blind person sight, anything like that. But we often give people an opportunity to come forward and ask God to heal them, and people will pray for them, and, and some get healed. 
some get healed, but it's not because um, the person they're praying with is especially anointed to heal. And I hope I made my point there. Last one for the day. Michael says, how can I convince a Muslim that Jesus was more than just a prophet? Michael's short answer is you can't. All you can do is declare it. Uh, they will say that Jesus was 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 a prophet. Uh, we Muslims revere him. But if you're demoting him from God to prophet, you're not um, revering him at all. In fact, you're desecrating him and what he's come to do. Um, uh, the Quran teaches that Jesus uh, didn't really die. He wasn't really resurrected from the dead. And uh, obviously, Michael, that's in complete contrast to the Bible uh, and what it says. So um, you can't convince them. All you can do is declare it. Challenge them to look it up. Dig into the Bible. Find out what's true and deal with that. And they're going to set aside, while they're digging in, they're going to have to set aside preconceived ideas. They're going to have to set aside what they've been brainwashed to believe. Just Direct them to the Word of God and then get out of the way. Pray for them, but get out of the way. Don't get involved in uh, arguments or debates. There's simply no value. Let the Holy Spirit do the work. If that person is really seeking the Lord, God will reveal himself to him. Hey, thank you for tuning in today. You've been listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And Lord willing, I'll be back with the star of the show tomorrow, Paul, at 4 o'clock on AM 630 Word. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4 And Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. AM 630, The Word. We hope you've enjoyed The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron. You can find out more about Pastor Ron and all of the folks over at Calvary Chapel by logging on to calvarysa.com. Once again, calvarysa.com.